Uh, Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul. Good morning, Christ community. Like Paul said, uh, the pastoral fellowship program has been amazing for me. I've been here for five months, and I've already grown in tangible ways, I think, as a person, as a pastor, and I'm just thankful for this congregation's graciousness and its generosity. So it's truly a privilege to be a part of this congregation. So I was this this past week, I was on my way to Chicago for Thanksgiving and had a sermon basically written, prayed about it, and felt really strongly that I needed to start over. So I, <laughs> I wrote a new sermon uh, on the train on my way to Chicago, and during that time of prayer, I was just really reminded that God is truly at work among us. Um, this is not just a human organization, Christ community, and we just come here and talk about religious ideas, but this is a place where God is supernaturally at work in our hearts, in our lives, in our community. And I want to ask God in prayer that He would work among us even in this moment. So if you'll pray with me. Lord, we thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for the many blessings that you've poured out on us during this Thanksgiving season. We thank you for the gift of your Son that we get to celebrate uh, in Advent and in Christmas. We ask, Lord, today, even now, that you would be present with us, that you, Spirit, would be moving among us, that you would have your way. We give this time to you commit it to you and to your work. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in week two of our sermon series, For All People, and I'm excited about this sermon series. It's about some important themes, God's heart for and mission to all people around the world. So as I was preparing today's sermon, a hope for all people, so we have our hope candle lit a story from a friend of mine who pastored an ethnically diverse church for many years in the Cincinnati area came to mind. And this friend was leading a Wednesday night Bible study in his local church. And this Wednesday night Bible study was taking place just after the re-election of George W. Bush. So they started their Bible study by going around asking people to share how they were feeling. So they went around, people weren't too opinionated, didn't want to get political or anything, and that sort of went completely out the window with the final gentleman who shared. 
the gentleman said, Pastor, I am, I'm feeling great. God's man is in the White House. Right then, a woman burst through the door, flustered, looking disheveled. She comes down, sits right next to the, the gentleman that I just shared. She says, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late, everybody. I'm a bit of a mess. The devil's in the White House. <laughs> this story highlights the silliness that can result when we place our hope too much in any one person or thing. Both of these people place their hope in one candidate or the other, believing they would be the salvation or the ruin of the country. And that's our tendency. We see that in ourselves and in others already in this election cycle. Now, it's true that one particular presidential candidate might be far better than another. I'm not arguing that. But when we put our hope for salvation in any political figure, we'll end up disappointed. We end up with a kind of contradictory story that we just heard. And Maybe you don't struggle with placing your hope too much in political figures. Maybe you struggle with placing your hope in popularity or in good grades or in job success. Whatever it is, we tend to hope in things other than God. We end up disappointed. We end up having those things fail us. In our biblical text this morning, we are going to see very simply that we are to hope in God's salvation. We are to hope in God's salvation. That's a simple statement, but I think it has a lot of richness to it. So we're going to spend our time this morning hopefully unpacking the richness of what that means. We're going to look at three characteristics of God's salvation that we can hope in. Those three characteristics are we're going to see that God's salvation belongs to God. God's salvation is big enough for all people. And God's salvation comes in Christ. The most obvious characteristic of God's salvation is that it belongs to God. But what does that mean? In verse 10 of our passage that Paul just read, the multitude cries out, salvation belongs to our God. What does that mean? I think many of us, including myself, if we have to take a guess right off the bat, think salvation means salvation of our souls for eternity. And it certainly means that. That's definitely part of what's meant here. But I want to suggest that the meaning here includes a lot more than that. So in order to see this, we need to understand a little bit of the context of what's going on here. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's the end of the story. It's a prophetic book that speaks about the future, but it's a letter written to seven churches. This is a historical document of correspondence between a group of churches around what is today the country of Turkey from the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. 
And John is an old man by now. Jesus died and rose and ascended several decades before. And the church now, as it's growing, is being persecuted by the Roman Empire in different pockets. So John, who himself is writing Revelation from exile, he's been exiled by the Roman Empire to the island of Patmos, he's writing this to this collection of churches. And in chapter 2, we get a glimpse of what is happening in these churches. Look at what John says about the church in the city of Ephesus in verse 3. He says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is the language of persecution, enduring hardships, persevering, not growing weary. Then in verse 10, to the church in Smyrna, John shows that they too are about to undergo persecution. Read with me. Do not be afraid, he says, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. So persecution is a big part of what John is addressing in this book. And that's what's happening here as, as part of this book. In, in chapter 7, John is writing to churches that are being persecuted. Salvation for John in Revelation, part of it is deliverance from persecution, from the world's opposition. So, in, in addition to the forgiveness of sins, salvation of our souls, it's deliverance from persecution. It also includes deliverance from God's judgment. There are many scenes throughout Revelation of God judging the sinful. One of those scenes is in Revelation chapter 6, if you'll turn over a few pages. In this chapter, God's judgment begins to come down on the earth, and the chapter ends with the people of the earth crying out in fear. It says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand in the midst of God's judgment? That's the question, and that's the question that is answered in our passage. Turn to chapter 7, verse 9. Sorry, I'm having you turn over. After this I looked, John says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and what are they doing? They are standing. These people who are praising God for His salvation are the ones who are delivered from God's judgment. And as a side note, God's judgment in Revelation is not just a picture of this cranky deity coming down and smiting the people that He doesn't happen to like. God's judgment is the means by which He delivers His people. The sinful are 
those persecuting and murdering the church, and God's judgment is coming on them. His judgment is just. That could be a whole other sermon. For now, God's salvation includes deliverance from judgment. So when we say God's salvation here, we mean God's deliverance of His people from the judgment of sin, and ultimately, as His people remain faithful to Him and persevere, it means deliverance from suffering and the death that comes with persecution. But what does it mean that this salvation belongs to God? Well, in the Old Testament, God's salvation is praised when He delivers Israel in battle. For instance, God saves Israel by defeating Egypt and delivering them from the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. King David in the Psalms calls God's deliverance of him from his enemies salvation. In those contexts, salvation is a military term. And that's what's going on here. The image is of God saving his people, delivering them with a military victory. It says in Revelation 7, verse 9, that the people in this multitude were wearing white robes and waving palm branches. White robes were what Roman military generals would wear in their victory parades after a battle was won. And palm branches were used in festal celebrations, especially when a king was coming to town or when there was a military victory to celebrate. These are images of victory. A modern way of putting it would be to say they were wearing royal blue t-shirts and waving their foam number one fingers. Melissa and I went to the parade, the victory parade, Royals Victory Parade, and stood on uh, 17th and Grand, I think. And the cool part for me was seeing the players go by, because you get to see the actual people who won it, who Eric Hosmer, that's the guy, who brought the championship to the city. Moose, he brought the championship to the city. And that's what's happening in this passage. With much higher stakes, we see this scene where the multitude is crying out, salvation belongs to our God. God is the one who has won the victory for us. We did not do it, God did. God is the one who has saved us, who has delivered us from suffering, sin, and death. God is the only one who saves. Salvation belongs to God. Melissa and I, like I said, took the train this past week to Chicago. I really love the train, by the way. It was my first time. Um, but I was sitting on the train trying to think of an illustration for this point that God is the only one who we can hope in for salvation, that to put our hope in anything else won't work because salvation belongs to God. And I thought and I thought and I could just come up with nothing, so I turned to Melissa and I asked, can you think of a time in your life when you put your hope in something that you probably shouldn't have and were disappointed. And without hesitation, she turned to me and, you, and said, you mean boyfriends? 
we do this all the time. We think that salvation is in someone or something else, and we put our hope and our trust in it or them instead of in God. And there's two ways we do this. If we're suffering, if we're going through a tough time financially, if we're having relationship difficulties, if we're being picked on at school, if we aren't achieving what we want to achieve, we put our hope for salvation in a better job or a different relationship, etc. Of course, a better job, for example, is something that, especially if we're having financial struggles, is a good thing and we should hope for. But it's something that we hope for, not something that we should place our hope in. Salvation only belongs to God, so we hope in Him. The same is true for us as Christians in a country that has conflicts with our faith, points of tension. We do not, and and really have not, ever had a country that has totally lined up with our faith. Now, we should hope for just and wise political leaders. But ultimately, if we are ostracized and receive social persecution for our faith, or even if we face governmental, official persecution for our faith, salvation belongs to the Lord, and we hope only in Him. We don't place our hope in a Christian nation. We can hope for a nation that's honoring to God, but we hope only in God for salvation because it belongs to Him. The second characteristic of God's salvation is this. God's salvation is big enough for all people. God's salvation is big enough for all people. Again, to see this, we look at the context of our passage. Look with me at the first half of chapter 7. Here, John hears the number of the 144,000 Israelites sealed before God's judgment comes on the earth. These Israelites are the people of God that God will deliver through the time of tribulation. But look at what happens in verse 9. John heard the number of the 144,000, but in verse 9, he sees a great multitude. John doesn't get to see the 144,000 Israelites. He just hears the number. But now the scene shifts, and he gets, gets a vivid vision of a great multitude that no one can number. And this great multitude is not made up only of the nation of Israel, but it consists of those from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, from every language. It is not a coincidence that John placed this counting of the number of Israel and this vision of an uncountable multitude from all people back to back. Nor is it a coincidence that they occur in the order that they do. God's people originally was the nation of Israel, but that was just the beginning of the story. In Christ, His people now include those from every nation and tribe and tongue. And the point of this, brothers and sisters, is not for us to read this passage and simply say, 
Oh, that's pretty cool. Diversity is cool. The point is for us to read this passage and realize that God's salvation is too big for just one nation. God's salvation is too big for the borders of ancient Israel. God's salvation is too big for the borders of America. God's salvation is too big for staying within State Line Road and Troost Avenue. God's salvation extends to all of our city, to all of our country, to all people. And we saw in Genesis 12 last week, God promised Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise that is fulfilled here. In Genesis 15, God takes Abraham out under the night sky, and God says to Abraham, look at the stars. Count them if you can. Abraham obviously can't count them. They're uncountable. This great multitude that's uncountable is the fulfillment of his promise that Abraham's offspring shall be like the stars. The salvation that God gave to Abraham and to the nation of Israel extends to all people. I think back again to the royal celebration ceremony at Union Station a few weeks ago. 800,000 people in the downtown area to celebrate a World Series championship. That is astounding to me. 500,000 here in this picture, approximately. That's easily the biggest crowd I've ever been around and one of the biggest crowds I've ever heard of in my lifetime. And all of those people, or at least the vast majority of them, were people from the Kansas City metro area. I'm sure there's, there's some that came from the surrounding region, maybe a, a few that flew in from other parts of the country. But this picture in Revelation 7 dwarfs that gathering at Union Station. It makes it look like a small pep rally for a, a local high school team or something. It dwarfs it. We're talking about a multitude that can't be numbered. We're not wrapping around downtown buildings or parking garages here. This isn't hundreds of thousands of people packed into a few city blocks, but a multitude expanding across a flat plain with no sight obstructions extending farther than the eye can see in all directions. Even if you had a helicopter crew to fly around to get an estimate, the assembly would be too big to get anywhere close to the right number. No one can count this multitude, the text says. How big is your idea of God and His salvation? It is big. But not only that, the royals' victory was big enough to bring together people from Overland Park and Casey Moe and Lee's Summit, but God's salvation is big enough to bring together people from Kansas City and St. Louis and New York and Korea and Cuba and Syria, and the list goes on. God's salvation is big enough for hipsters from Westport, black teenagers from East Kansas City, Native Americans from South Dakota, name 
the type of person, the type of people, and they will all be praising God together. That's how big God's salvation is. It fills the earth. God's salvation is big enough for all these people to cry out together with one loud voice, the text says. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not as catchy as Let's Go Royals, maybe, but it's not about catchiness. Two weeks ago, our Leewood campus hosted our church planting partners in the Middle East. And they op- our partners opened our eyes a little bit, and they let us know that this country that they're working in in the Middle East is the fastest-growing, home of the fastest-growing church in the world. This country in the Middle East is growing faster, the church is growing faster than it is in the United States of America. God is at work extending His salvation to all people. We see it. That's why it's exciting for us as a church to be involved with this Middle Eastern church planning organization, and that's why at the Brookside campus, we're excited to partner with the 11th Hour Network, an organization that builds and strengthens churches in northeastern Africa. God is on mission all over the world. We want to join Him in that. His salvation is big enough for the entire globe. Now, other than partnering as a church with these global organizations, what does it mean for us practically that God's salvation is big enough for all people? Well, I think a few things. First, we can realize that America is not the center of Christianity. It never really has been because God has always been at work across the globe, but it never will be because God is at work throughout the world. He does not have one geographical center. This is especially true today, since there are more Christians in Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia than there are in America and Europe. God is saving people from all nations. And so we can pray for God's work among all people. A resource like the Operation World Prayer Handbook uh, gives statistics and updates and prayer requests for every country in the world is is a good resource. But praying for God's work to all people in all nations is is a small but a good role to play in God's mission across the globe. In addition, we have people from all over the world right here in Kansas City. We have refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Somalia, from Iraq, from Syria. We have immigrants from whatever country I can think of. And we can work toward being able to love and serve and share our faith with these people right here at home. And finally, we can work towards reflecting the bigness of God's salvation here in our local church. Our city population, according to race, looks like this. I'll put up a graph here. You may be able to guess what the dots are. This is Kansas City 
metro area population by race. The red dots, as you may be able to guess, maybe not, are where white folks live, the blue dots where black folks live, and orange dots, if you can see them, uh, Latino areas. And there's other ethnic groups that aren't represented here. I think what, what this shows us is that our society does not have a category for the type of gathering that we see in Revelation 7. And sadly, often, neither does the church, it seems. According to the most recent sociological studies on the subject, Christian congregations in the United States are approximately 10 times less diverse than the neighborhoods that they are situated in. Now, the sad part about this is not that we don't get to sing Kumbaya together or that we don't get to celebrate our diversity. That's, that's somewhat neutral. The, the sad part is that our society does not get to see on a regular basis in the local church a foretaste of the kingdom of God, which is what the church is for. We're not interested in diversity in the church for the sake of diversity, but for the sake of how it testifies to the bigness of God's salvation. The, the point of this passage of all people being together praising God is to show that God's salvation is big enough. Now, a practical next step in this area, in this area of reflecting this multinational, multi-ethnic reality of God's people in the local church. Practical next step for this area, for the white folks in the room, which is most of us, is to seek out and learn from, intentionally, other races. Humbly ask about and listen to the experiences of coworkers, neighbors, or church family members who come from a different cultural background than yourself. Read non-white authors on the subject of race. Assume a posture of listening. That's the first step. There's, there's many steps after that. That's the first step, and that always continues. For our Latino and black and Asian American brothers and sisters, know that at Christ Community, you are family. We may be a, a somewhat dysfunctional family, but we are family. At our most fundamental level, we are not a white church because the church as God has designed it transcends any one ethnic group. We are a church with mostly Anglo-Saxon folks, but we are as but you are, if you're not part of that description, as much a part of this church family as anyone else. And yet I'm aware, especially being married to Melissa, who is Chinese-American, and whose permission I have to talk about right now, I'm aware that it can be tough to be a part of a church where the majority of people come from a different cultural background than you. I know that personally as someone who is part of an African-American church for some years. 
doesn't mean anyone's doing anything wrong. It's just it can be tough. Not always, but it can be. So I apologize for the times that we as a church don't understand you or fail to treat you as family. I ask that you be patient with us, but not only that, that you share with us how you're experiencing things and how we can improve in caring for you as part of our family. So we've seen that God's salvation belongs to God, not anyone else, that God's salvation is big enough for all people, and finally, we see that God's salvation comes in Christ. God's salvation comes in Christ. We've been talking about God's salvation, meaning his ultimate deliverance from suffering and sin, but how exactly does this deliverance happen? If we're to hope in God's salvation, where and when does that occur? In verses 13 through 14 of our passage, an elder, who's probably an angelic being of some kind, gives us the answer to this. Verse 13 says this, Then one of the elders addressed me, that is John, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where do they come, referencing the multitude that we've been talking about. I, John, said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In short, God's salvation happens by means of Christ's sacrificial death for us. The lamb in this verse, as it does throughout the book of Revelation, is a symbol for the crucified Christ, which is significant because God's salvation does not come through a conquering hero or a strong political figure, but a sacrificial lamb. It is the blood of Christ that washes our filthy clothing and makes them perfectly clean, that cleanses us of our sin. He took the punishment, the judgment of God that we deserve on the cross, and He thus offers us the forgiveness of sins. He thus makes us right with God. He brings us into God's family. We could not and cannot achieve this ourselves. God's salvation, His deliverance of us from all suffering and pain and sin and death comes only through the blood of Christ. If we hope in God's salvation, then we are hoping in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the center of the gospel. But notice in verse 14, the preposition in, in the blood of the Lamb. He does not say by means of or through. He says in. Why is this significant? And on second look, why is it those of the multitude who are taking the initiative to act and not Christ? It is those in the multitude that actually do the washing of their robes. It is they who make them white in the blood of the Lamb and not Christ. What's going on here? 
This passage is not picturing a totally passive receiving of God's grace through the blood of Christ as the sum total of Christian life. Christ's blood is indeed the only basis and the only source of power for the entire Christian life. But out of the grace that God provides us in Christ, there is a Christian life to live. These are people who have not only dipped their lives in Christ's saving blood one time when they said a prayer or came to church. These are people who have dipped their lives in Christ's saving blood and who have come out looking like Christ. Again, going back to the context of the book of Revelation, John is writing to persecuted or soon-to-be-persecuted Christians. And here... He is calling them to be willing to be persecuted and even martyred like Christ. We see something similar in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, where it says, They overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, same phrase, and notice how it continues, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. When he says overcoming by the blood of the Lamb, dipping their robes in the blood of the Lamb, he's referring to living in Christ's sacrificial life and death. Our lives are to look like Christ's life. Our deaths are to look like Christ's death. That's our true response to God's grace. I heard a preacher give an analogy once. He said, if you are traveling by plane from one city to another, say, Kansas City to Beijing, you would not buy a ticket for Beijing, drive to the airport, get out of your car, and start running in the general direction of Beijing. You would buy your ticket, go to the airport, get in the plane, and go to Beijing in the plane. It's only in the plane that you get to the destination. But your getting to Beijing still depends on you buying the ticket. For us, if our destination is this Revelation 7 picture of the faithful standing before the throne of God, we can't just buy the ticket and not get in the plane. We can't just say a prayer but not be in Christ. Except in this case, we can't afford the ticket and Christ buys it for us. But this is even more reason to not have our ticket purchased and then try running an impossible distance on our own power. It's only in Christ. This is why Paul talks about living in Christ and why our passage characterizes God's salvation as coming in the blood of the Lamb. Now, we do not live in the same historical moment as these churches that John is writing to. We're not persecuted anywhere near to the same extent that they were. And so we may not have to make the decision to physically die for the sake of Christ or not. There are Christians today in places like China and Afghanistan and northern Africa that are persecuted and do have the threat of death if they follow Christ faithfully. 
but we normally do not here in the States. What does this mean for us then? It means two things, to start with at least. First, it means that we die to ourselves. Christian discipleship is a matter of putting to death our own selfish, sinful desires and living according to the will of God, which we discern by Bible study, prayer, reliance on the Spirit. And secondly, and maybe more specifically, it means that we live sacrificially. We may not have to lay our physical lives down at the feet of Christ, but we do, or we are called to lay our finances, our comfort, our security, our possessions, our time at the feet of Christ for Him to use as He pleases. The Christian life, the good life, shockingly but truly occurs in the blood of the Lamb. God's salvation comes in Christ. So we hope in God's salvation, God's salvation that belongs to God, that is big enough for all people, and that comes only in Christ. We began with a story that demonstrated our tendency as humans to place our hope in things and people other than God. We place our hope in political leaders and a sense of safety and security and financial abundance and reputation, and the list goes on. Every one of these things will ultimately fail and disappoint us. Our friends can leave us, our physical health can go downhill, our company can fire us, our candidate can lose, our military can falter, and our faith can be persecuted, but we can hope in God's salvation. And that's all that really matters. That's the only thing which is perfect and unstoppable and for all people, including for you and me. And we hope not in some fairy tale, made up utopian vision, but we hope in the sure promises of the almighty, all powerful, all knowing God. We believe in this vision that He has given to us. And we believe in His promises in the rest of Revelation 7. Because of this, we, His people, can say, along with the Scripture, we will be before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over us. Never again will we thirst. The sun will not beat upon us, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be our shepherd. He will lead us to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your salvation, your deliverance that we hope in. We confess that we place our hope in things and people other than you. It's a, it's a constant battle to not do that, to, to hope in you. And so we ask for your grace 
to hope in and trust in you alone. It's only by your grace that we're able to do that. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to do that. We thank you for your word. We thank you for working among us. We pray, Lord, that you continue to change our hearts into hearts that look more and more like yours. In your name we pray, amen.